Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the Early Day Saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Nicholas J. Frederick, an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. We're talking about the book Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints. And Dr. Frederick wrote the chapter Facing the End, the Second Coming of Jesus Christ and the Millennium. Nick, welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. Thanks, Blair. I'm happy to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Let's talk about early Christian anxiety. How about we start off with some anxiety here? Yes. The New Testament stories and letters present us with a Christian community that was really ready for Jesus to come back. And you say that end times anxiety was pretty high amongst early day saints. I think so. I mean, when you consider the central message of of Jesus's gospel is, behold, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? There's this idea that even in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom, however you want to understand the kingdom, I mean, this is a pretty complicated topic in and of itself, but there's this idea that the kingdom is here. And then you get to the book of Acts and Jesus leaves, right, of the ascension with the idea that he's going to come back soon. And so the question is just for the Christians, well, how long is it going to be? Is it going to be a few months? Is it going to be a few years? I mean, Acts chapter 2, Peter gives the speech the day of Pentecost and says, you know, we're, we're in the last days. This is it, right? The thing, the things are going to wrap up and the, the kingdom's going to be established and the Messiah is going to return and establish a golden age and conquer our enemies and resurrect the dead and judge the wicked. And things are just going to be great. And then the years go by and nothing happens and nothing changes. And so you get to the Thessalonian letters. And one of the questions that arises in First Thessalonians is, you know, people have started to die. You know, parents, children, friends, family, they, they've died and Jesus hasn't returned yet. And what's going to happen to them? What's going to be their role in the kingdom? And so Paul writes and says, hey, you know, Jesus is still coming. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout and the angels will be there with him and all the righteous will be lifted up and the dead will be resurrected. And so kind of giving comfort to those people who are, who are worried that their dead friends and relatives are going to miss out on the coming kingdom. And Paul specifically says, comfort one another with these words, right? This is going to be okay. You don't have to worry, you know, if a member of your family dies and Jesus isn't back yet. And it seems like they even overreact to this a little bit because in Second Thessalonians, they've quit their jobs. Yeah. You know, they're just kind of hanging out there waiting for Jesus to come back. And Paul say, hold on, a couple things still have to happen first, right? There has to be a, an apostasia, a mutiny, Right. And there has to be, you know, the, 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 the man of sin has to be revealed. So there's a couple of things that have to, have to happen first. But even Paul in his letters talks like, you know, he's living in the last days. First Corinthians seven, he says the time is short. Right. If, if you can if you can put off getting married for a few years until after Jesus comes back, you know, put off getting married and go serve a mission. And so he's even Paul seems to be anticipating that he could possibly be around for the second coming. It's striking to me that they thought that, and Jesus talked about his coming being like a thief in the night, right? Yeah. There's, there seems to be this tension in the New Testament between signs of the times and sort of knowing when it was going to happen or, or being aware versus other places in the New Testament where it's like, actually, you, you won't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the idea of coming as a thief in the night, again, is from the, the, the Thessalonian letters. There does seem to be this, you know, Matthew 24, Jesus has said, you know, this is the signs to look for. 
This is what you'll want to pay attention to. But at the same time, you're you're living in the last days, right? And you want it to be you. You want to be a part of that kingdom. And I think every, I mean, pretty much everyone between 30 or so AD when Jesus is resurrected and 2023 kind of sees themselves as being part of that kingdom. They're the ones who want to be there when Jesus returns. You know, the, the anxiety that the, they felt in the first century it's very much like a lot of us Christians or Latter-day Saints feel today, right? Is Jesus coming tomorrow? Because I I can make the signs fit. I can read the signs in a way that they that they make sense for my dispensation, just like so many others have done before them. And that's the trick. We've been given some signs and we know Jesus is coming back. So what's the responsible way? What's the what's the proper way to interpret that? Is it is it one day or is it five hundred years from now? When's that gonna be? And how are we gonna handle it? if he doesn't show up when we want him to. Right. And for early day saints, for early Christians, most of them being converts from Judaism, they brought their own end times expectations with them. So they didn't just get end times expectations when Christianity arrived on the scene or as it developed. They brought some stuff from Judaism. Talk a little bit about that context. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, you read through so much of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. You look at Isaiah 65, you look at Joel chapter 2, you look at the, the promise of a messianic banquet, right, in Isaiah 25, uh, just Ezekiel, right? The, you have all these prophetic books, Zechariah, that are talking about what's going to happen right at the end. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 through 13 are particularly influential, right, for Jews and for Christians. Uh, the, the, the prophecy that one like the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds of heaven with the angels, and so the, you know you you bring that expectation into Christianity from Judaism that there is going to be this this moment in time where things shift from being you know the way things were in the present to being the way things are that you want them to be right and the and the prophetic writings seem to set that idea up and so the Christians as they as they're dealing with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus they naturally just read their scriptures in a way that suggests that yes these prophecies are going to be fulfilled right, in the years after okay, the Messiah's ascension when he's going to return and do the things that were promised that he was going to do. So this is not by no means a uniquely Christian thing, particularly around the second century or so BC. Judaism really gets hit with this apocalyptic fervor. They're experiencing persecution. Things are going really bad. You've got some particularly rotten emperors who are trying to force them to do things that they don't want to do, and they're pushing back. Then you have to deal with the Roman Empire, Right, at the same time, and you've got your own schisms within Judaism, and so they're they're just looking, they're reading their scriptures, hoping and looking for some kind of relief, and perhaps the Messiah, perhaps Jesus, is the one who's going to present that. And it could be really colossal. I mean, a lot of these Hebrew Bible apocalypses, these kind of texts about the end time, talk about smoke and blood. It's great and terrible, and there's a new temple, and there's so it's it's pretty colossal as yeah. well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely, it's on a worldwide scale. I mean, the sun's going to turn black and the moon's going to turn to blood and the stars are going to fall and the heavens are going to part like a scroll and there's going to be earthquakes and, you know, mountains are going to move. And it's just this worldwide, if not kind of galaxy wide, right? I mean, the scope of this is tremendous. And so the, the thought is that whatever is going to happen is going to be on that kind of scale. And so as the book of Revelation asks, who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to make it through these kind of events? And that leads to its own anxiety as well. Am I ready for this when it happens? 
right? You mentioned the book of Revelation. So it was it was aware of these earlier texts, right? It was kind of interacting with them. And, and it seems to give a timeline as well. This is where the word millennium actually comes from, as you write in your chapter. Yeah. So give us a little bit of insight into that word. Yes. Yeah, so, so Revelation is largely building upon Daniel. Um, it's taking images from, you know, Daniel 7 through 13, taking a lot of imagery from Ezekiel and kind of reworking it into this Christian apocalypse to provide a, a timeline for Jesus's return to the earth. And so you're right. Revelation 20 is the only place where we get this idea of a, a thousand year period of time where Jesus is going to reign on the earth and the forces of wicked are going to be subdued. And it's just going to be this pleasant golden age of sorts, right? Before this brief little time when Satan's going to be released, but then he'll be conquered once and for all. And so for only appearing, a word that only appears once in the scriptures in Revelation 20, yeah. this has had a a monumental impact upon Christian theology. I mean, a lot of Christians just, uh, we can believe, believe a lot of different things, but most Christians have some form of millennialism that they subscribe to. Yeah, with the Bible ending on that note, it's kind of hard to escape the idea of the millennium, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's there. It's just hanging right there. This is what's going to happen next. And again, when you're living in a world where everything is, you're oppressed by forces on every side, and you're just faced with persecution. And again, as we get into the early centuries of, of you know, the, the Christian era, again, you're facing persecution. The Roman world is collapsing. How are you going to handle making it through these times? Well, you, you keep hoping for this millennial age to appear, or maybe you start to think that you're, maybe you're living in it right now, and you can take solace in the fact that the kingdom is, is there. That's right. It some of this imagery kind of seems like it's undoing the Genesis story, right? Like, am I off base on that? Like, I mean, we see the creation accounts, right? So, the Earth is create, the moon, the stars, all of this, and then in in these apocalypses, we kind of see that start to be undone. It's like the whole world is sort of reversing that creative process that we get at the very beginning of the Bible. It's sort of being undone at the end of the Bible, or at least you know, the Book of Revelation wasn't the last text written there, but at least as far as we have the Bible, we see it being done up in the beginning and then yeah. undone at the end. And this this is a thread that you'll see throughout the prophets as well. Kind of this, uh, in Jeremiah, for example, you have a deconstruction of the earth uh, and, and a decreation of sorts that parallels the creation. But definitely the way that we have the Bible today, the way it's set up with Genesis first and Revelation last, presents this really nice kind of meta-narrative that runs through the Bible of a creation that's building up towards something, towards the coming of the Messiah. And then you get the coming of the Messiah, and then you get the fallout, then you get the second coming of the Messiah, and then you end in Revelation 21 with a new heaven and a new earth, and you have God reigning personally upon the earth, never to leave, right? right? And you, you have the reappearance of, you know, the, the tree of life, right? In, in God's city there on earth, you have a holy of holies, that just is right there smack in the middle of the earth, turning the earth into this kind of tabernacle or temple. And the idea being that, yeah, this entire Bible, everything from Genesis 1 up through Revelation 20 has been about getting us to this one point right here, which is this golden age where God dwells upon the earth in Revelation 21. And so it provides, again, this, yeah, this really nice meta-narrative strain that runs through the Bible and leaves the readers with a sense of anticipation. I want to be part of that. When is that going to happen so I can have God wipe away all the tears from my eyes. You talk about how three different views on the millennium have 
developed. These are yeah. broad categories, right? There's there's a lot of differences in Christian thought over the ages, but the kind of three main ones. Let's let's unpack those right now. So we'll start with premillennialism. Yeah. So premillennialism is probably the earliest form of millennial of kind of a millennial idea. Uh, we start to see it in the writings of the early Christian fathers during the the first and second centuries. Uh, AD. And this, the idea of premillennialism is the idea that things are going to get bad at the end. There's going to be these these rough periods where persecution, tribulation happens. Then when things seem like they're at their lowest point, and this is largely based upon a text like Revelation 11, just before things hit their lowest point, Jesus is going to return to the earth and he's going to destroy all the forces of evil. He's going to preserve the righteous who've been faithfully waiting then you're going to introduce this thousand-year period of peace. And so for the first two or three centuries of Christianity, this is probably what the majority of Christians subscribe to. It disappears uh, really for the next 1,800 or so years until it reemerges in the 19th century, really, with uh, someone like Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith seems to subscribe to some elements of premillennialism. You have our 10th article of faith, right? The literal gathering of Israel, restoration of the 10 tribes. Jesus will reign personally upon the earth. But Joseph's not the only one. Uh, You've got John Nelson Darby, who's a contemporary of Joseph Smith, who's going to introduce something called dispensational premillennialism, which is the idea that Earth's history is divided into periods of time. And each of these periods of time had their own kind of rule system. So the Jews lived by the law of Moses. Christians live by grace, and the final dispensation is going to be this kind of the kingdom of God on earth, but it's not going to happen until after there's a tribulation of seven years based upon a reading of Revelation 11. And so the idea is, this is where a lot of our more conservative evangelical friends kind of develop the idea of the rapture. Prior to the seven-year period, the righteous will be taken away, they'll be lifted up, as Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then you'll have seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus will come a third time. And that's when the millennium is going to be established on earth. And so dispensational premillennials really have this very tight timeline of the events that are going to happen in the last days. And so just you can perhaps see kind of how Latter-day Saint belief in periods of time and kind of how we anticipate things happening before the end on some level Right, we kind of share uh, a fair amount with our dispensational premillennialist friends. Right, I hadn't ever heard of the rapture until I was serving a mission. I was in Wisconsin, and there was a lot of evangelical uh, folks that that I met with, and that's the very first time I heard of that. You know, they had script; they were pointing to scriptures that were talking about people getting the righteous would be someone would two in the field and yeah. one would be taken up and one would be left behind and this kind of stuff. And then I find out there's this whole movement about it, like the left behind series of books, this sort of fictional retelling of it's like the work and the glory for Latter-day Saints, <laughs> like that kind of tells this fictional story, but for the future of like what's going to happen. And I think even Gerald Lund ended up writing a book of fiction that was sort of like those. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that one, but I, I, it was really it was really interesting. It was basically kind of like a a Latter-day Saint version of Left Behind. Yeah, and understandably so. I mean, it's been hugely popular because this is this really is the question. If, if you subscribe to a, a premillennial perspective where the rapture is part of what you believe, and I was the same as you. I never heard of the rapture growing up, right? It wasn't something we ever talked about. And it wasn't until I started interacting with, with evangelicals post-mission 
right? That I kind of started to see some of this come out. But yeah, the idea is what what do you do? And talk about anxiety. What do you do if you're one of the ones that are left behind? <laughs> yeah. If you look around and everyone else is gone, you walk yeah. into a house, right? And it's empty and you're the only one there. I mean, and the first thing going through your head is, did, did the rapture happen and I missed it? And now I'm stuck with seven years of tribulation. I mean, <laughs> my heavens, you can see how that would have a huge impact on how you would live day to day. But yeah, I think the Left Behind series is a, is a testament to just how popular this idea is. Yeah, it's it's really arresting. It's a very very dramatic, uh, very dramatic yeah. way to think about it. So premillennialism is that. Uh, the next one, let's talk about postmillennialism. Yeah, postmillennialism um, is more of a later movement. We don't really see any kind of type of it early on in Christianity. Postmillennialism is the idea that you're already in the millennial age right now, and Jesus is going to come. The second coming will happen, but it will happen at the end of the millennium, not the beginning. And so the way that this often plays out, we start to see this kind of with someone like Jonathan Edwards, right, in the 18th century um, and into the 19th century. The idea is if you're living in a world that is getting better, right, if things are improving, if uh, and, and you're, you're looking around to, to, to those people in your community and those people in your country and they're working towards a better future, then you start to say, okay, maybe this is the kingdom. Maybe this is that golden age, right? Maybe things aren't going to get bad before they get better. It's our job to kind of help uh, pave the way in a way to do the things we're supposed to do. And then Jesus will, will appear at the end of the millennium, but we've kind of done the work because we have the potential. Really, that this is about putting power in the hands of the believers, right? To kind of pave the way and mold out, carve out a, a future. And you see this through the 19th century, really into the, you know, the social gospel movements at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, with the idea that you can apply a Christian ethic to contemporary social problems, right? And that Christianity has the power to bring a, a remedy to rectify some of those things and make the world a better place. But really, um, post-millennialism is undone by the invention of the machine gun. It's as simple as that. As soon as World War I hits... And the world starts to see just how bad things have gotten. You can't argue anymore that you're in the golden age and things are getting better. World War I ends that and World War II slams down the hammer even harder on kind of the post-millennial movement. And really premillennialism picks back up again in the wake of World War I and World War II. You have more kind of conservative Protestant evangelicalism that's promoting more things are getting bad before they get better kind of thing. But postmillennialism, I, I appreciate it because it it subscribes to to believers a power to make the world a better place. We don't have to just sit back and wait and hope that we don't miss the rapture. We can actually get out there and do something, right? And then Jesus will appear when it's time for him to appear. Was there a sense among any of postmillennialists that they were helping usher in that that final ending? Like that, okay, we actually have to do this work. I'm I'm thinking about like Latter-day Saints building Zion, right? The project of building Zion was this really proactive thing that was supposed to be a positive thing of building this community, this society that would be prepared for the return of the Messiah. So it wasn't just that like things are getting better because maybe God was sort of making that happen, but also that believers had a role yeah. to play in that. You mentioned the social gospel. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And this is what's interesting about Latter-day Saints is that I think if you were to talk to most people and you were to talk about premillennialism, most Latter-day Saints, and you were to bring up premillennialism, most Latter-day Saints would be like, yeah, that's me. I believe that, you know, there's going to be these, because we're, we're taught 
right? Especially for yeah. people of of kind of our generation, right? Who grew up during the the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, right? Uh, thanks in no part to this book, How Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth, which was the best-selling nonfiction book during the 1970s, yeah. which provided a blueprint for how the world was going to end, right? And all the bad things that were going to happen. And I think that kind of bleeds over to Latter-day Saints of of our generation. We would say, yeah, well, we're, yeah, we're premillennials. Things are going to get bad. And then things are are going to, you know, Jesus is going to come back and introduce a kingdom and that's what we're going to happen. But as you say, really, if you look at what Latter-day Saints are doing on the ground and you listen to a general conference like we just did a few days ago, what's being espoused is more of a post-millennial ethic, right? The idea that we can build temples, the idea that we gather Israel, the idea that we do missionary work, the idea that we're working in our communities the idea actually seems to be more of a post-millennial than a pre-millennial idea that we're living, even if most of us think that doctrinally we subscribe something more close to premillennialism. That's right. So premillennialism, post-millennialism, we see some different elements within Latter-day Saint beliefs that, that mirror some of these early Christian beliefs. Amillennialism is the third one. Yeah, amillennialism, whenever you put an A in front of a, a word, it negates it. So the idea between amillennialism is that, that it's a movement that doesn't believe in a millennium. But really, I mean, what it boils down to is it sounds very similar to postmillennialism in that the idea is that there will be a second coming and that second coming will happen after the millennium, but the the difference comes in how you perceive the present. And amillennialism really has its roots as well in the early Christian church. Um, as we transition out of kind of the premillennialists of Irenaeus and Justin and others, this gets picked up by Augustine, for example, perhaps most famously, uh, this idea that you're already living in the kingdom and that the second coming is going to happen at some point in the future. But the difference is with postmillennialism, the idea is that the trajectory is always moving upward. Things are always slightly and slowly getting better. With amillennialism, the idea is that things can be good and things can be bad. Or you're going to have your, your positives and you're going to have your negatives. You're going to have your ebbs and you're going to have your flows during the present age. But at the end of the present age, you're still going to have the second coming, the return of the Savior. So life is going to be pretty normal. And then Jesus is going to come back rather than the idea in postmillennialism that things are on an upward trajectory until Jesus comes back. And so that's, I mean, prior to the 20th century, these were considered largely the same thing. That's the only distinction we've made in the last hundred or so years, but it has to do with how you view the present. Are we trending upwards and only upwards, only better, or do we have our ebbs and our flows? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm most sympathetic to amillennialism in the sense of, I, I just see so many Christians throughout the centuries have always thought, you know, oh, this is the end times. And we've we've just been wrong like every time. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, in a sense, I think at death is is a certain kind of second coming for us. Like this is a, a time when when we would return to the Savior or that everybody would have a moment or a time of of a second coming themselves. I, I really do. I kind of I guess I mix some like post-millennium, a-millennium type of beliefs for myself. Um, a lot of this hinges, though, on how we read Scripture, right? Like mm -hmm. how literally we're going to read these verses. So let's talk about that for a moment here. You talk about some literalist uh, interpreters like Irenaeus and Tertullian. They were the ones who were saying it was like 
really imminent, they would read very literally. Talk about how scripture interpretation impacts these beliefs. Yeah, and so this is particularly true with eschatology. And I mean, the book of Revelation is the prime example of this. When you read the book of Revelation, do you interpret those things literally or do you interpret them allegorically or metaphorically, right? And the book of Revelation really resists any kind of, you know, reductionist reading. That's what makes it so complicated. But for the early Christians into the second century, they read that thousand-year period as a thousand years. Um, in Second Peter, when it talks about one day for the Lord being a thousand years here, they're reading that literally. And so this, this idea that's also fairly common today, and I think a lot of Latter-day Saints would say, yeah, that's, that's what we believe, is this idea that the earth is seven 1,000-year periods. Mm-hmm. Right, the Earth has seven thousand years of existence, and we're somewhere towards the end of the six thousand years, and the millennium will be the seven thousand year. Right. Well, that that goes back to first, second century Christians. The Epistle of Barnabas talks about you know the the week of creation. Right. You have these seven one thousand year periods, and so when you apply a very strict literalist view to the scriptures, you start to you start to find yourself subscribing to those kind of premillennial one thousand year periods of the earth's existence, the timeline becomes a little bit easier to nail down. And so people like Irenaeus, Irenaeus is a theologian living at the end of of the second century. And he writes a book called Against the Heresies. And he's looking at other people and looking at their eschatological beliefs. How do they feel about the millennium? How do they feel about the resurrection? How do they feel about the judgment? And he's kind of saying, look, if you don't agree with this kind of literal premillennial view then, then you're off there with, with the heretics. You're off there with kind of the Gnostics who are coming out saying, well, it's not really about a literal return of Jesus. It's not a literal 1,000-year period. It's actually something a little bit more metaphorical. It's actually about be, being content living in the present and making the present the best you can rather than looking off into the future. And so by the time we get to the 3rd and 4th century, the uh, literal reading has kind of fallen out of favor. Your Christian mm-hmm. theologians, now at this point, like a Clement of Alexandria or an Origen, and especially when we get into Augustine, are going to be saying, well, kind of the, the literal interpretation, that's for kind of the, the minor league believers, right? That's for the people who, it's, it's the milk before the meat is the literal mm-hmm. reading. The true Christian believers embrace the metaphorical reading of eschatology, the metaphorical reading of the kingdom. And so in that context, that you, you open the door for a kind of an amillennialism, the idea that the Jesus is reigning from heaven and life goes on, the kingdom is here on earth. But ultimately, you know, this, this the present is kind of, it's bettering yourself in the, in the present, making sure your spirit is being nurtured, making sure that the world around you, you're doing what you can to make it a better place and not get hung up in the fact that Rome gets sacked in 410 AD by Alaric and the Visigoths. And the world marvels. This is never, never thought this was possible. And the Christians look at this. What does this mean, right? What is, what's, what are the implications for us? And for Augustine, comes along and says, "Look, that's don't. That's just that's that stuff is it's insignificant, right? What we need to be concerned about is is understanding that God's kingdom. This is a sign, right? That God's kingdom is at work here on earth, and this kind of amillennial idea." This non-literal, more metaphorical reading of texts like Revelation, of texts like Daniel and Joel and Isaiah, uh, become the norm for the next really 
1500 years through the Reformation. Right. As we look at this history, we can see how scripture interpretation is reacting to conditions on the ground. So we saw this more recently, like at the turn of the century, when evolution became more broadly known about as people, as scientists discovered more about the age of the earth, and it would challenge some of the more literalist readings about how old the earth was. And so some Christians would would lean more into their literalist readings and reject scientific advancements. And others would say, well, we need to make accommodations there and figure out, okay, well, maybe what we thought about the age of the earth was, wasn't right. And how, so how do we still honor these scriptures? What could they possibly mean if they didn't mean those literal things? So you can see how Christians are, even from the earliest times, right? But the earliest Christians all the way up to the present are just trying to make sense of scripture with the conditions that they're facing here on the ground. Yeah. Which just adds to your anxiety kind of to bring things full circle for us. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got this book that I, that I've been told is the word of God. Right. And I have the spirit to help me read it. And so I feel like I should have the tools, but I'm, I struggle to, you know, my reading of the scripture or your reading of the scripture might not match with mine. Maybe it doesn't necessarily merge with what I'm hearing from the scientific community. I mean, what about dinosaurs? Right. What about these right. things that I'm seeing in the world? I can go to a dinosaur museum at Thanksgiving point, and then yeah. go to church the next day and hear things that don't. I mean, I'm seeing a couple different worlds colliding here and I've right. got to figure out how to find kind of a, a place where I'm comfortable being a reader and devotee of scripture while also being comfortable living in the world where I'm seeing kind of empirical knowledge moving forward. And that that, that again is a that's an anxious space as I try to make sense of the word of God with what I'm seeing around me. That's why I really like Justin Martyr. This is a, a figure who lived about a century after the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, he, he was trying to answer questions about why Jesus hadn't come back yet. And he would offer some ideas. I think like he said that, oh, you know, God is delaying this time because he, his regard for humans, he wants us to have a chance to repent or he wants, you know, he's, he's extending mercy, that type of thing. I appreciate him saying that he said, you know, some Christians believe this, some of us believe this. He he presented these different ideas, and then he he also said there there are good Christians who believe all of these different things. It seemed like he he just kind of wanted to let people know what the options were, what the options of belief were, but also find a way to help Christians just love and accept and honor each other, even if they had different opinions about how the millennium or how the end times would shake out. Yeah, then that's that's a that's a fantastic perspective. I I I share your appreciation for that, right? In an age in the second century where really it's kind of the it's winnowing out the the quote unquote heretics, which just simply means somebody does it a different way than you do. Right. And that seems to be with yeah. the, with people like Irenaeus, uh, with people like Hippolytus, right? They're just they're going around trying to figure out where is this orthodox ground that I need to stake out so that I can protect the orthodoxy and make sure that we identify the people who aren't doing what things we consider to be orthodox? Justin is simply saying there's lots of different ways to be a Christian. I have my way. My way is more of a literal interpretation of the millennium, but there's other Christians who believe differently from me, and that's okay. And we have conversations, right? And we talk about it and we exchange ideas. But uh, we don't want to condemn somebody for taking a metaphorical reading of Scripture, where I might take a literal reading of Scripture or something like that, right? And so I, I, I appreciate I appreciate that approach. 
right? I guess I don't talk about it a ton with with members that I think our our talk of millennium sort of comes up when we're studying the New Testament, I think, often, right? Because we get to the book of Revelation. So I, I don't actually think I have a very good sense of where most Latter-day Saints are. I, I, I would imagine sort of premillennial, that things things will get bad, Jesus will return. But I don't know, I guess as sort of an amillennialist myself, I, I'm just curious about your impression of kind of where where people are. You teach at BYU, you probably have a, a general sense of kind of where Latter-day Saints are. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, whenever I teach, I spend four days on the book of Revelation when I do my second half of the New Testament class, and we dig into this uh, pretty thoroughly. And most of them are, you know, when I'll, I'll lay out for them different views, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, and most of them will say, you know, just, well, Based upon what you're describing, I'm premillennial, right? I believe that things are going to get bad before they get better, and then Jesus is going to come, and I have to make sure I have my food storage, right? And we just kind yeah. of we prepare for the end because that's what we're told we need to prepare for. Uh, we're at the end times, and things are going to get bad before they get better. But you know, when I bring out you know some of the well, okay, so look at what look at what the church is doing. Look at kind of um, the missionary effort or President Nelson's emphasis on gathering Israel. President Nelson's emphasis on building temples. Does that suggest uh, something different in how, you know, Latter-day Saints can interact with millennial ideas? And we say, oh, okay, yeah, in that case, you know, maybe I'm a little bit, mo- I'm a little bit post-millennial and a little bit pre-millennial. <laughs> and they start to recognize that, yeah, there, there is, there is some nuance and complexity to this question. It's not simply just reverting back to time is going to end after things get really bad and we all move back to Missouri and then Jesus comes <laughs> and destroys the wicked. I think this chapter is really helpful. I'm glad it's part of this book because it will give Latter-day Saints a lot to look at, a lot to chew on, and to see how different time periods kind of took on different millennialist views kind of based on how things were going at the time. And I think we see this with, you know, it's it's in the name of our church, Latter-day Saints, and the, and the church was restored at a time of upheaval and, and uncertainty about the future and and kind of this revolutionary spirit. So it, it makes sense. And when people can can take a step back and look at the different options and, and learn more about why people believe the things that they do, I think it's, it's a really healthy way to approach the scripture for us as a community. I completely agree. That's one of the things that drew me to this chapter as well, is just kind of seeing the the way that our development as a faith tradition mirrors that of of the early Christians, and that if when you look at Joseph Smith's earlier writings, it kind of leans premillennial. But when he starts talking about building Zion and building a kingdom, by the time we get to Nauvoo, he seems kind of squarely in a postmillennial space. And then by the time you get to Brigham Young and John Taylor, and, and during persecution out in Utah, we're kind of back to premillennial rhetoric right. again. And then as we kind of get into the 20th century and things start to settle down, we'll go through this pockets of post-millennial build-up Zion upon the world, build temples. But if we go through a particularly dark couple of years, all of a sudden kind of the pre-millennial rhetoric comes out again. And so I think it is very much a reflection of the world in which we live. That's how we kind of um, adapt our millennial thoughts, very much like the early Christians did. The chapter is called Facing the End, the Second Coming of Jesus Christ in the Millennium. It was written by Dr. Nicholas J. Frederick, who we're talking with today. He's an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. He earned his PhD in the history of Christianity from Claremont Graduate University. Nick, thanks so much for taking this time to introduce us to some of these early day saints and their thoughts about the millennium. Blair, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. 
Each guest is a contributor to the book, Ancient Christians, an introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.